morning we are uh, privileged to be able to listen uh, and study along with our brother Eddie Parrish. Um, I know that those of you that are in this room, uh, for the most part, know him and respect him. I don't have to build him up to you in that regard. Um, Eddie was born in Dallas, Texas, 1990 graduate of the Brown Trail School of Preaching. Since graduation, he has preached all over Texas, I guess would be the way to describe that, from, from one end to the other, basically. Um, serving mostly with the Brown Trail Congregation from 2004 to 2014, and then again resuming that work in 2017 until the present time. In addition to pulpit preaching, he worked for several years um, as uh, an instructor at the Brown Trail School of Preaching, hosted the Truth and Love television program, has done extensive video and television work for World Video Bible School and, and GBN. Uh, he and his sweet wife Mary, who's able to be with us and we're thankful for that, have two sons. One daughter-in-law, and soon we'll be welcoming a new daughter-in-law into the family. And so we uh, rejoice with them. I have raised two great boys, uh, done a tremendous work, um, is a always a deep thinker and someone who presents his messages with clarity and depth and teaches me something uh, every time and I know he teaches us all something and so I'm thankful that he's here with us. We actually get a, a parish sandwich today if I'm not mistaken uh, to open the day and end the day and uh, in a day that will also involve worshiping our God. I don't know if there is a better day and so Eddie we're glad you're here and asking you to come preach to us. Let's preach the word. Grateful for uh, the opportunity to be here and thankful for uh, Wayne's kind words. Um, I've always uh, tried to live by the motto of never let truth get in the way of a good introduction <laughs> and uh, appreciate Wayne uh, holding true to that. Um, uh, actually, I hope the Lord will forgive him for, for saying those nice things, but <clears throat> more importantly, that he'll forgive me for enjoying it. <clears throat> Music uh, has always been a part of, of our family, the parish family. Uh, it was a, a, a musical household. My dad played a little bit of guitar, uh, but we listened to a lot of music. Daddy's favorite was Don Williams. Uh, we had uh, probably most of his albums listened to them a lot. Mama was more uh, still in the country uh, genre, but she was more Loretta Lynn, Charlie Pride, uh, Kenny Rogers. Um, I have one brother, two, two older brothers. Uh, the brother just older than me was all Elvis all the time, <laughs> which was fine. Uh, my oldest brother, Alan, was more Journey, REO Speedwagon. Uh, so you kind of get, uh, get the idea. But we had a lot of that in our house. But secular music wasn't the only music we had uh, in our house. Uh, you would also hear often the songs of Tillet S. Tedley, Ello uh, Sanderson, Fanny Crosby, Isaac Watts. Uh, they were all well represented in our home as well. It was a place where worship happened, and it happened frequently. Our house was often a place where members of the Lord's body would gather just for singing nights. And uh, we would bring songbooks and sing hymns and worship together. Worship is, in a lot of ways, uh, a very personal activity. Uh, when a person simply pours out his or her heart 
to God, to use the language of Psalm 62, verse 8. But it's not just a personal thing. Worship is a family affair, or at least it needs to be, it ought to be. And when the Jewish people traveled from their distant homes to Jerusalem three times a year for those annual feasts that that required that that pilgrimage, they often went as families. And uh, you might recall in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 and following, uh, that that little quaint uh, account of the life of Jesus when he was 12 years old. Uh, the text tells us, Luke tells us, that, that uh, it was their custom as a family to travel to Jerusalem for the feast. And they were doing that that year. And remember even that on their way back, uh, when Jesus remained in Jerusalem and, and everybody else was traveling back, they were traveling in such a large group that uh, Mary and Joseph just thought Jesus was among the crowd somewhere. They just assumed that. Uh, even though he wasn't. So they they would travel uh, as families. They would travel in groups as they would go from wherever they were in the known world at that time to Jerusalem. And the psalm that we're considering this hour, Psalm 127, is a psalm that draws our attention to the importance of the home and the importance or the place of worship in the home. And we'll draw, hopefully, some practical lessons from that as we make our way through. But a little background information uh, at first. And incidentally, if you have the lectureship book, then I encourage you to to read the chapters in there by by Brother Wayne Berger and Brother John Moore, who both deal with these Psalms of Ascent uh, and deal with the background information. I was able to to hear Brother Berger's lesson yesterday. Excellent material. Hope to hear John's on that. But we'll cover just a little bit of that background this morning in case you aren't able to hear those lessons just to kind of set up where we are. But Psalm 127 is one of the 15 psalms referred to in the Psalter as the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. And the consensus seems to be among scholarship and historians that these were psalms that the Jewish people sang as they journeyed from wherever they lived in the world to Jerusalem those three times a year for the Feasts of Tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost. They're not exactly sure when that custom started. Some say probably after the return from Babylonian captivity that they took some of these psalms that already existed and kind of brought them together in this little mini mini psalter within the the larger book of psalms and they would focus on these 15 psalms to sing together as as they traveled. But whenever it started, it started at some point and and became uh, part uh, part of their culture, part of their lives. And these Psalms of Ascent, as I read them and have studied them, show a progression of thought. And incidentally, preachers, I encourage you, preach a series on these 15 Psalms. Uh, I did that uh, last year uh, at Brown Trail and just took one, one Psalm each Sunday morning and did 15 straight weeks just working through these. And it'll enrich your life, and I think it'll bless the church um, uh, to, uh, to consider these. But um, these Psalms of Ascent, as I see them, 
them show a progression of thought. And so if you, if you want to just kind of scan these real quickly, I want to give you just a brief summary of the Psalms leading up to Psalm 127. Wayne Berger did a great job of this in his lesson yesterday. But the worshipers begin in Psalm 120 crying out to God for deliverance. From, uh, from people, the people among whom they live. And, and the psalmist expresses how, you know, I, I live among people who hate peace. You know, I'm for peace, they're for war. You can picture in your mind these Jewish people living scattered out among the Gentiles, scattered among people that didn't share a lot of their, uh, their beliefs and understanding, certainly didn't share their concept of God. And, and, uh, and they said, we live among people who hate peace, and they were longing to be able to be with people who love peace. And so you get that picture that they're, that they're scattered about, and so they sing this song about that. Psalm 121, they set out on their journey, from away from those haters of peace toward Jerusalem. They, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now some say that's, that's the hill of, uh, of Jerusalem or the hills around Jerusalem. Certainly could be. Others have said, well, perhaps it's just the hills in front of them that they're about to, to, to travel on and through on their way to Jerusalem. Either way, they're, they're setting out on their journey and they look to God for help and acknowledge that God is their sustainer and their protector. And they sing about their trust in God that He's going to bring them safely to Jerusalem for this uh, period of feasting and worship and fellowship. Psalm 122, when they arrive, they, uh, they stand in the gates of Jerusalem. They, the psalm begins with, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. They're thinking back now on when they were still in their various locations and when someone said, it's time to go to the feast, they said, it, it made us happy. We were glad when they said, it's time to go. And now we stand in the gates of Jerusalem. They have arrived and... They praise God for the role that the city plays in their lives. And they pray that God would keep it in peace. And so you can picture these families as they've arrived in the city that they've been longing to be in. And they're looking around and they recognize what, what a, a, a glorious... Uh, role the city of Jerusalem has played in their history and now they're here and they're happy they're singing praises to God about that Psalm 123 now at the place of worship they turn their eyes to God a gracious God and request that his goodness would overpower the contempt that they feel over those who mistreated them they've come out of this place where there are people that hate peace and now they've arrived and they turn to God and they express that they feel contempt they, they they, they sense that. They feel it from the people that, that they've lived among and they ask God to be gracious and, and overpower that contemptuous feeling that they feel. 124. They acknowledge God's goodness and protection. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, we would have been overcome by these enemies. And so they praise God for that. Life has been challenging for them, but they've weathered the storm. 125. Their trust in God gives them stability, gives them protection. They call upon God to, to bless His faithful ones. And then 126, as they think about their arrival in Jerusalem, it was to them a dream come true. When we arrived, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's a dream come true. We're here. Finally, and God has restored us to this place. And their mouths were filled with joy and laughter and worship. 
And so that brings us then to Psalm 127. And as the worshipers are there and they've turned their attention to God and they've praised God for all of these blessings that are theirs, you can then picture these families thinking about their families. And not only has God been good to us to bring us here, but He's brought us here as a family. And um, what a tremendous blessing to be able to share that with their family. And that's Psalm 127, uh, the blessing of a godly home. And so let's take a few minutes now that we've kind of set things up, got ourselves to Psalm 127. Let's uh, break down the psalm and then look for some practical lessons. First of all, I would divide the psalm just to, uh, it's, it's, it's only five verses. We'll divide it into two sections. First of all, the foundation of a successful family. The foundation of a successful family, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The point of verse 1, <clears throat> unless the Lord builds the house, goes much deeper than any physical edifice. This is a psalm uh, attributed to Solomon. And, uh, uh, and perhaps uh, the, the, the reference to building a house is, uh, is Solomon reflecting on the literal physical house that he was privileged and honored to build uh, in Jerusalem. But the, the, the point of the psalm is not so much about the physical edifice. The house stands for those who live within it. As verses 3 through 5 will show as he begins to talk about children and what a blessing they are. And so his point is, if the Lord does not build the house, if the Lord does not build the home, if it's not built in harmony with God's design and God's blueprint, those that are building that home are really wasting their time. And he makes the same point with different uh, imagery in verse 2 when he talks about in uh, the, or the latter part of verse 1, unless the Lord watches over the city. Those who watch over it watch in vain. Those that are tasked with protecting a city waste their time if, if God is not their helper, if God is not the one really overseeing that. Cities are composed of families. So I don't think he's changed his, his point there. Uh, he's just using different images to talk about it. And so whether building a home, whether guarding or protecting it, God has to be the foundation of that if we ever want to see true success in our families. Amen. Even the hardest workers labor for nothing if God's not the foundation of that for which they work. That's verse 2. It's in vain that you rise up early, go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. It, it, it's all for nothing, he says if God is not the foundation of it. People can burn their candles at both ends day after day, year after year, but if they do so without God as their ultimate builder and protector, it's all for naught. But on the other hand, those who trust God's design 
Those who live in harmony with it can expect God to bless them with peace and good sleep. That's the end of verse 2. He gives to His beloved sleep. People can, can live lives of, of anxiousness and uh, just, just harried, just all over the place, trying to, to, to build something that will last that never will. But when we turn our lives over to the Lord, let Him be the foundation, then we can sleep at night in peace. It's one of the great blessings of living life the way God wants us to. And so the foundation of a faithful family. Then the second part of the psalm, verses 3 through 5, the fruits of a successful family. Foundation, verses 1 and 2, the fruits, verses 3 through 5, fruits of a successful family. Look at those verses. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Again, I'm going to ask you to picture this in your mind. As we talked earlier about the, um, uh, the, the, the context and these psalms and, and the progression of thought. They've left their places where people hate peace. And they've lifted up their eyes to the hills, uh, relying on God for His protection and care as they travel to Jerusalem. And they, they arrive there within the gates and they praise God for, the, for the, the role that the city has played in their history. And they ask God to bless them. They turn their eyes toward God to worship. And, and now that the, you can picture this father as he's led his family there and he looks around and he, and he sees his family and they're there for the feast, for the worship, for the fellowship, all of that as a part of, of their present experience. And then he thinks about his children and realizes what a blessing they really are. Amen. Children are a heritage of the Lord. And how important that reminder is today. We live in a culture that often views children as hindrances, burdens, liabilities. Isn't that why abortion can be rationalized and so many people's minds the way it has been. People don't view children a lot of times the way God views them. And if you can view them as, as a liability, as a burden, then you can convince yourself that it's alright to snuff out their lives. That's not God's view. It's not the psalmist's view here. Those that still have a trace of humanity and love within their hearts know that the psalmist is right. Children are a gift. Children are an inheritance, a reward. And the psalmist understands as well that his children can be weapons of war. Verse number 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now that may be kind of an unexpected comparison. Might not be what we would, <laughs> what we would naturally think about when we try to think of some kind of a comparison for children, but it's a reasonable one if you think about it. By the godly influence of parents, children can grow up to be godly too. 
Psalm 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Children can fight side by side with their parents against evil and immorality. And a man with a quiver full of godly children, well on their way of standing tall in the Lord's army, has confidence, even in the face of his enemies. Verse 5 says of the psalm, those of us who have godly children can understand that, that principle and what a blessing it is. And um, God be thanked and God be praised for that. And so there's the psalm just kind of broken down into, into two major parts. The foundation of a successful family, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. And the fruits of a successful family. Children that are a heritage of the Lord. Children that, that grow up to be able to stand side by side with mom and dad and, and, and fight against the evil influences of society and culture. And so you picture this father that's brought his family to Pentecost or Passover or Tabernacle, whichever feast, and they've arrived there and he, he's, he's looking around and he's got his family there and he's happy, he's, he's in peace, he's, he's grateful and offers his praise to God for his family. Now, with all of that said, let's turn our attention for just a few minutes to some lessons. What are some points of application that we can make from this psalm? Well, here's one to think about. A house built by God has specific characteristics. We're talking about the foundation of a, of a successful family. What does a house, a home built by God look like? If it's the case that we work in vain if we, if we try to build our homes without God, then what does a house built by God look like? What are its characteristics? Well, let me offer you a few of these. Some of this, I'm sure, is, is not going to be new material that you've never heard before, but it's certainly important to emphasize a lot of these things that we have heard before. First of all, God's blueprint for marriage is for one man to be married to one woman for life. You want to build a home the way God wants it built. We start there. Genesis 2, 18 to 24. Matthew 19, 1 to 6. When Jesus was asked that question, or asked a, a question that pertained to home and marriage and divorce specifically, His answer was, go back to the beginning. Have you not read? And he goes back to Genesis 2 and, and, and makes the case. And over time, that simple statement that God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman for life, that statement becomes even more profound and important as time passes by. Because our culture has... It, it, it's, not even a, it's not even a point anymore of our culture moving away from that principle. It's moved. It's moved. That's right. As a matter of fact, it's moved so far away from God and from His Word that we're in a place now where, where people struggle to even define what a man or a woman is. Could you imagine that we'd ever reach that point? <laughs> that, 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 that people... <laughs> That, that people couldn't even articulate that and, and, and figure it out. The problem is they know. That's the problem. They know. 
They're just trying to figure out a way they can deny it with some sense of credibility. And they're falling flat on their face. The emperor has no clothes, and it's, we need to be the ones that are standing up and telling everybody the emperor has no clothes. But that's where we are. God's plan, one man, one woman for life. You can't even get, past, get to that principle with many in our culture because they can't even tell you what a man and a woman is. Marriage is no longer viewed as an institution originated and governed by God. To our culture, it's just a social construct that can be defined according to the whims of any individual, any society, any government. And those are tragedies. But the fact that they're true makes it paramount that we instruct our children in our homes, in the church, that God's way is the only right way to build a home. Amen. Second, what does a home built by God look like? Well, God's design for the home is for the husband to lead that home with a love that mirrors Christ's love for the church and for the wife to support and respect that leadership. That's Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Paul says, verse 23, Ephesians 5, the husband is the head of the wife. God told Eve, he, Adam, will rule over you. Genesis 3, 16. The head of the woman is the man. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. The passages are there and clear. And the husband's love for his wife is to be a, a, a love just as Christ also loved the church. Jesus loves the church, gave his life for it, is the Savior of it. Ephesians 5, 23-25. He is the Savior of the body. That's the depth of his love for the church. Husbands, that ought to be the depth of our love for our wives. That's right. We should promote as a part of our leadership and love for our wives, we should promote the salvation of our wives as Jesus saves the body. And when, it, when we talk about saving our wives, we're not talking about saving her from Kenny the cockroach or, or you know, Marvin the mouse. We're talking about spiritual things, salvation, eternal things. Though if you have to kill a cockroach along the way, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Husband's love ought to mirror the love that he has for himself. Ephesians 5.33 You know, of all places, the golden rule ought to be practiced in the home. Of all places. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Matthew 7.12 that, that, that principle could revolutionize the world. You ever thought about that? That one principle, if we would just apply it consistently, would cure a lot of the ills of this world. And it ought to start in our homes. Husbands, love your wife as you love yourself. Practice the golden rule. A wife's love for her husband is a submissive love. Ephesians 5, 22. And let it be noted here that a wife's attitude toward this command reflects her attitude toward God. Same is true with the husband and his role as well. The, the, the wife who properly submits to Christ will submit to her husband. Keep in mind, of course, that this submission, despite cries to the contrary, 
Submission to one's husband doesn't mean inferiority to him. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. Don't let the world define for you what God has already defined in His Word. The, word, the, the world tells you that, that's, that, that that arrangement is... is um, is evil and it's and it's and it's wrong and it, and it makes women inferior to men. It doesn't do anything of the sort. Wasn't Jesus in subjection to his father when he walked the earth? I always do those things that are pleasing to him. John eight twenty nine. I came down not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John six thirty eight. I have finished the work you gave me to do. John seventeen verse four took upon himself the form of a servant Philippians 2 5 and following but was Jesus inferior to his father I and my father are one John 10 30 he made himself equal with God when he claimed to be the son of God John 5 verse 18 you know all of us submit to others don't we we submit to teachers. Students submit to teachers. We submit to elders. We submit to governmental authorities, police officers, others. And we understand in those relationships that that submission doesn't make us inferior to those people or to those entities. It's a matter of role. It's a matter of function. The same is true in the home. Third, what does a home built by God look like? Well, it's God's design for children born within that home to submit to the leadership of their parents. Ephesians 6, 1-3. And the reason? Simple. For this is right. We ought to do some things simply because they're the right thing to do. It's not to get an allowance. It's not for praise. It's not for whatever. Children, submit to your parents in the Lord for this is right. My parents used to say at times <clears throat> when they would give us certain instructions and we had either the... Uh, the, the courage or maybe it was the gall or the stupidity to ask why and we were told because I said so <clears throat> and that was a good enough reason Amen. sometimes we do things simply because God said so and he's God second practical lesson right? we've looked number one what does a home built by God look like number two let's talk about protection God protects in specific ways, the homes that he builds. Talked about, you know, God, God's homes built by God have certain characteristics. Well, God protects the homes that he builds in specific ways. Unless the Lord guard the city, which is made up of families and homes, those who keep watch, watch in vain. All right, well, what is, what, how does God guard our city? How does God guard our homes? We offer you these, five of them. Number one, God protects our homes by instructing us to fulfill our respective roles in them. The roles we just talked about. That's part of the protection of these family units is when each one does, fulfills the role that God has given that person to play. Number two, God protects our homes by instructing us on the importance of intimacy between husband and wife. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 through 5. Paul deals with that, that, that physical, intimate relationship between husband and wife and the importance of it and, and, and not to be separated from each other in that way for, for a long period of time. And, and if so, only by mutual consent so that you can devote yourselves to prayer and that you come back together soon lest you be tempted. I mean, that, those are, Paul's trying to guard that relationship. And he's doing that because that relationship helps to guard and protect the home. Third, 
God protects our homes by warning us about the eternal consequences of adultery. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. That's an imperative there. It's not a declarative statement that just says marriage is honorable, as some translations have. It's an imperative. You, you hold marriage in honor in all things. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Why does God tell us that? Well, it's for our own good, right? To, to protect our homes, to protect our marriages. There are eternal consequences to violating that marriage relationship. That's God, when He tells us that, that's God trying to protect us oftentimes from our own selves, from our own lusts and desires. He's protecting our homes that way. Number four, God protects our homes by warning us that divorce is acceptable for only one reason, fornication. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. Fifth, God protects and builds our homes by instructing us on proper conduct. Just, just the general statements in Scripture about how to live life, how to be the, the person God wants you to be. He tells us what real love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, all those characteristics of what love does. Part of why that's there is to protect the homes that He's built, that we're a part of. Peter instructs us, 1 Peter 3, 1-7, live with your wife, he says to husbands, in an understanding way, giving honor to them as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You ever thought about the fact that husbands, that, that how we treat our wives has an effect on, our, on the, whether or not our prayers get past the roof? Why did God tell us that? To protect these homes that he's built. And then, you know, we could spend another half hour or longer just looking at specific statements in the book of Proverbs about how to conduct yourself, about how to talk to each other, how to communicate. Keep your tempers calm, Proverbs 15.1 and other passages too. All of, all of those instructions in Scripture are a part of how God helps us to protect our homes. And if the Lord doesn't watch over the home, those who watch, watch in vain. Number next, three. Last one. Practical lessons. The training of children to be warriors is done in the context of worship. The training of, chil of children to be warriors is done, that training is done in a worship context. Again, remember that the context of these Psalms of Ascent is the context of worship. And the worship of God plays a vital role in the training of our children to be assets in the Lord's army. That was the, the reason why that, that father had brought his family, had brought his children to Jerusalem for this feast was in part to help train them and bring them up so that they could be warriors too, that they could be uh, arrows that God could use in the fight. God bless parents who see the importance of investing the time and work that goes into getting little ones ready and bringing them to worship week after week. We probably don't talk about that enough and encourage parents enough in that. And we all probably know um, mothers, it's usually the mothers, not always, but most of the time, that if it's just one of the parents that's getting the kids ready to brand it, it's usually the moms. 
God bless those moms that understand this principle that training children to be warriors is done in the context of worship. Doing that puts them in the best position to be successful. I understand and I know that worship attendance is no guarantee of lifelong faithfulness. But if parents want to set their children up for success and put them in the best position to be successful, they'll teach them the value of worship by word and by action. And let me say this, and I want to say it kindly, but I believe it's important for churches. Keep your children in worship. I, I, know, I know congregations that you know, they, they mean well, they, they, they want to do well, and they, 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 they think that, that uh, you know, taking the children out of the general worship assembly and, and putting them off in, in another place and doing their own thing while the rest of, of the church is worshiping, uh, I understand the arguments behind that. I've heard them. Uh, I just don't buy them. Where better for children to learn the importance of worship, how to worship, why we worship, and to gain the benefits of worship than in worship. Amen. Keep your children in worship. The home is much too important an institution to be left to the devices of sinful men to create, organize, and operate. All of that activity, though it would include rising early and retiring late, is futile, worthless, and wasted when God's not a part of it. But when we turn the reins over to God's direction, when we operate our homes in harmony with Scripture, there's great reward, there's increased confidence, and there's success as God defines that. Amen. And may God help us to that end and to His glory. Thank you much. You listened well this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you.